Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Rife podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful David Vincent about his book, A History of Solitude. We talk about the difference between loneliness and solitude. We talk about David's own experience of his problematic PhD supervisor and we talk about walking dogs. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. so so much for being here I am so thrilled um I read your book A History of Solitude which is a beautiful book I truly recommend it to people um and the topic obviously History of Solitude I thought well this could be really interesting in terms of the way it might relate to the experience of PhD researchers Um, and that isn't really what it's about at all in fact scholars don't appear very much in it at all there's a lot on smoking in terms of this discussion of, of um, smoking, which is amazing. Um, but we're not going to talk about that tonight. Um, but thank you for being um, willing to come and talk to us sort of tangentially about solitude and the PhD researcher. So the first thing I always do, always ask people is uh, to talk to us a little bit about their, their own experience of um, the PhD process. So could you tell us a little bit about that? The important point is where I began my student life, which is at the University of York, just after it had been founded. Uh, And it was the most exciting place to be, full of new stuff, new ideas, uh, and really interesting students. And I had a great time there. Uh, And at the end of my three years, uh, I managed to get an award to do research at Cambridge. And that turned out to be a fairly serious mistake. Right. I went from York, which was as, as, as at the leading edge of everything at the time, to a boys' boarding school, which is what a Cambridge college was in those days. <laughs> uh, and to a supervisor who had minimal interest in what I was doing and who I had to fire at the end of my first year. Right. Uh, and well, well is, done for firing him. Well, indeed. But this was, this is a, in a sense of minimal relevance to those who might be listening to this uh, podcast because two three years after I was there then the, the men's colleges at Cambridge when I went co-ed and the experience I had then has not been repeated nice. uh, and indeed the history faculty at Cambridge now is much more receptive to the kind of history that I do and I've had two visiting research fellowships there in, the recent, in recent years so what happened to me then was part of my biography um, not very really instructive for anybody coming after me. Um, all I would say that in, in terms of my more recent work on solitude and loneliness, that if in my fortunate life I've had a lonely year, it was that first year at Cambridge, right. stuck in this boys' college after York, um, with my uh, PhD going down the tubes at speed uh, and difficult to define the kind of social interactions that you would normally want in a, in a, in a, in a university. Mm. Well, I think, well, I'm really sorry to hear that you had that experience. Um, but as I say, I, actually, I do think it's useful to, for people to hear that you did fire your supervisor and you did 
change it up, kind of put yourself in the driving seat of it um, because, you know, you can make a change and people to, to listen to that and take that on board, that you don't have to sit and suffer with a PhD. Um, but yes, this idea of, of often um, doing a PhD is one of the most uh, lonely times that people experience, which is why I was wanting to talk to you um, about this topic. And in the book, you make an interest, interesting um, differentiation between loneliness and solitude. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, if you choose to be a historian uh, researcher, if you uh, set out an ambition of spending the rest of your working life in archives and in quiet studies writing books, then you've already embraced a certain sort of solitude right. uh, as your way forward. Um, many other entirely capable people wouldn't want that life. Um, so I was already, in a sense, tuned up for solitude. Um, in the book, I defined loneliness as failed solitude. Yes. That is to say, it's when you're on your own, when you choose not to be on your own, when you are on your own and can't find a way back to company, uh, when you're on your own uh, because of other pressures uh, in your life. Solitude, I, I've um, understood in the modern era at least, uh, to be a positive and chosen experience, a place when you can, can find yourself, where you can fulfil yourself. Um, and in the end, as a historian, I found my way to that. I've spent a long life writing books uh, and have fundamentally enjoyed doing so. So solitude's been good for me. Uh, but in those particular circumstances, as a postgraduate in my first year at least, uh, then it looked a lot more like loneliness. It's really helpful in terms of thinking about loneliness as failed solitude and that solitude can be a really productive space. And I think you talk in the book also about trigger points for loneliness and that they that it can become a problem at a kind of particular moments. Um, I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit, because I think, again, that really speaks to the postgrad experience. Well, the surveys which now are undertaken into loneliness um, get huge answers to the question, have you ever been lonely in your mm. life? Way up in the 50, 60, 70, 80%, which looks serious. Um, but it, it has a lot to do with the kind of life course which most modern men and women undertake. There are many more changes now in our circumstances than they used to be for most people in the past. Uh, now you've got two or three schools before you get to university, which you change between. Then you've got undergraduate degree. Then, in the case of myself and, the, and this audience, you've got the change to, to postgraduate. Then you've got the further changes as you work your way into your career. Then you've got changes in your personal life and your forming relationships and perhaps getting married, perhaps having children, moving home. There are a whole series of um, change moments in modern life, any one of which can go wrong. You cannot guarantee that your uh, student life will be as fulfilling as you wish it to be. You cannot guarantee that you'll um, move smoothly into a job. You cannot guarantee that when you move to um, the, the, the location of your job that you'll make friends there, and so on and so forth. There, there are more risks in the modern world. There will be moments. Uh, 
when you fall between the stools, when your networks fail, uh, and when you do feel quite quite lonely and, and, and suffer somewhat. Everything's to do then with duration. You can define uh, solitude, uh, loneliness, uh, as uh, an experience which has just gone on for longer than you'd like it to. Mm. We, we always know we take risks. If you go off to do a PhD, well, that's a risky business. And there's no way of taking risk out of doing a PhD. Mm. Um, if you then uh, are lucky enough to get a job, and many don't in, in your trade, then there are risks then as you start out. Um, I moved from Cambridge, where by that time I had got some sort of social network going, to um, Keele University in the Potteries, where I, although my family came from there, I had very little networks. They had to be rebuilt. Uh, and so it goes on. And the point is not to be too apprehensive about these moments of loneliness, if they are just moments, if they are just part of the um, contract you make with yourself. You say... I'll take the risk for being a PhD student for the pleasures it will give me, and I know there's a risk of loneliness. I'll take the risk of starting a new job in a new place. I know there's a risk of loneliness. And providing you know what you're letting yourself in for, and it doesn't go on too long, then it really isn't very serious. Uh, the, the, the statistics about loneliness that do matter, which usually affect about 5% of the population at any one time, are profound long-term loneliness, often caused by bereavement. And that's a different order of experience than, say, my own case, uh, a young researcher stuck in a Cambridge college for a year. They're not the end of the world. It wasn't much fun, but it's going mm. to kill me. Yes, and I think I think that, you know, obviously for some people it does become a, a serious issue at, at, at when they're undertaking their doctoral studies. But this... I think what's really interesting there is you're picking up on this notion of what, you know, as a, I as a therapist would talk this kind of transitional moments. And in those transitional moments where everything is thrown into, into play, that that everything is, is kind of a little bit unsure and that you're linking to these potential trigger moments for loneliness. And that they, because there's, you're either thrown into new, ways of relating to the people who are around you or you are literally taken away from the relationship network that you had before well, um, I, think the, I mean that will happen but i think the important and important point there is to remind yourself why you're there mm. why you're doing this mm. um bereavement which is a fundamental cause of illness is obviously forced upon you choosing to do a phd is not uh, it's 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 a life decision you've made, and you need to remind yourself that you've taken that decision, you're responsible for that decision, and coming with that will be a risk of some downside, but you can live through that because it's your own course that you're following. Yes, I, yes, and the potential that comes with that, that you've opened up a new gateway into a new experience and into yeah. new ways of yeah. being and into yeah. new relationships and so actually to embrace the possibilities there which may feel very challenging but um but there isn't there's yeah there are all sorts of possibilities in there it, it also of course I mean, it must be a basic issue for the whole of your enterprise uh there's doctoral research and doctoral research you're talking to somebody at the lonely end the solitary, solitary end of doing yes. research yes. where i part of a scientific PhD programme. I'd be probably part of a team. Um, 
jointly exploring some project with my own particular role in it, yes. uh, and have immediate company. Uh, some parts of humanities and social sciences, by their nature, uh, are isolated endeavours, uh, and, and, and you must again face face up to the fact that that's the choice you've made. Yes, and find or find ways of collaborating and find finding that way through. But I think you're right that people have very different experiences, don't they? In in the depending on where where they're sitting. Um, yeah, and, and it depends also on the provision that your university has made for you. Mm. The the college I was at was, was hopeless, um, but there was another academic, an established academic at Newnham, in fact, the girls' college, who ran a research group. Uh, every fortnight, which became a kind of social centre and brought people together. And, and I'm forever grateful to her and to that group for giving me a, a network really quite early on um, to, to join. And also, you, you, you seek out social facilities that have been provided. Cambridge even then had a graduate centre and it had, a, it had the university library, which is where I worked, which had a tea room, which was basic, my basic. Uh, location of my social life for the first year i love a tea room got to yep. love a tea room yep 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 still um, there so uh, another element in your book and i say there's so so much of interest in this book and i really would recommend it and i'll put the um, details of it in the in the show notes and say that it's in paperback now I, I have i've got the paperback i must be one of the first for the paperback okay, okay. <laughs> um uh so the the, another interesting element that I wanted to pick up on was that you talk about finding people negotiating to find space alone, to be alone, to find solitude within busy environments. And I think, of course, that has a particular currency at the moment where so pe- many people have been working at home and perhaps sharing um, that space with other people, trying to find how they can have that space to work Um for themselves, well, I think in the pandemic, uh, the evidence is that the desire for solitude has increased. Yes, in the way you just, just implied, there are lots of people, or have been during the, the, the lockdowns, um, who were used to finding some space at home to um, conduct their own affairs, and suddenly find it full of children or partners. Yes, um, who should be at work but now are not. Um, and unless they're fortunate to have a large house or and or a large garden, um, the lockdowns, I think, have been very stressful for a lot of people not being able uh, to get away from uh, their own family uh, during the day, as once they were used to doing. Um, and I've written in my book, and I've also in the Solitude book, and I've written again in the um, book I'm now writing about the pandemic, um, that being able to walk out of the house. Yes. Uh, was of critical importance um, that too much of the thinking about um, loneliness and solitude is based on the assumption that you only ever uh, stay within the four walls of your house, whereas, of course, it's very easy to get out of it. Um, and under the lockdown, uh, there was the one exception that was made to staying in your house was going out for one piece of exercise a day. Uh, and the government did that because it did understand that that really was important uh, and it was worth the the slight risk that that entailed. And the evidence is that people seized upon that 
with great avidity and 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 being able to walk the park, um, walk out the countryside, take the dog for the walk, um, was really important as a way of surviving uh, the, the, the pandemic. Um, and even as a research student, I mean, I was in Cambridge, beautiful town in its way, to be able to walk around that and walk out onto the into the countryside was important. Uh, and towards the end of my time, I was there for four years in the end, uh, I lived out on a village out on the Fens and used to walk out of my house into the into Fenland, which is the most magical landscape, if, if that's, that's the kind of thing that pleases you. Yes. I mean, I have to say that the, the walking chapter in the book was one of my favourites, truly inspirational. Um, and I talk a lot with um, PhD researchers about walking and taking their PhD for a walk um, and this sense of, of, a, of a walking practice, which is also that, that you know you talk about in the book, also is a kind of thinking practice, a meditative practice. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about some of the fantastic material that you've got in that in that chapter? Well, what I've um, stressed in that chapter is that the history of leisure, which is quite a large sub-discipline, has by and large neglected. Uh, it was the basic way of, of, of getting time to yourself, of relaxing, and of taking in the scenery if, if, if it was available to you. And it's been much neglected by historians because it's just so so dull, really, as a, as a subject. There's not much to, to see or to write about. But in terms of how people balanced up their lives, found time for themselves, then just walking out of the house, taking a stroll, uh, was probably the most important uh, category of recreation that was available. And it's been reinvented by the pandemic, by the lockdowns, Yes, um, where it's once more been an absolutely fundamental means of preserving people's sanity, either by themselves or, and this is not a thing which postgraduates can do on the whole, um, buying a dog. Right. Um, there are 12 million dogs now in this country, is pets, uh, which are a lot of dogs, a, a, a lot of walking every day. With you can, pets. you can, um, even if you can't have your own dog, I've just signed up to be a dog walker. So oh, if right, you can't okay. have your own dog, you can volunteer and walk other dogs, especially yeah. there's a there's a gorgeous, I'm just going to give a shout out now for the Cinnamon Trust that I've just signed up for, that walk dogs for people who are who are elderly or not well, and they can't walk their dog, so you walk your, their dog for them. <laughs> Well, that's that's fine. Well, thanks for that. that I mean, the, the, the other side of that, especially in places like France, Italy, where the rules are more fierce, um, where you had to have a dog to go, dog to go for a walk, people would hire other people's dogs what? to legitimize their, 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 their walks, sometimes get arrested for it. The dogs themselves ended up completely exhausted. <laughs> I bet, I bet. I didn't know that. Hire a dog. Who are these people and how do they think of these things? Um, so, David, I'm going to ask now a very unfair question, which I ask everybody coming on the podcast, in terms of, of a top tip or an idea for people to take away um, in terms of doctor research, loneliness and solitude. Some final thoughts for us, please. Well, at a general level, the, the key thing is to is movement. Solitude isn't necessarily a good thing. Loneliness isn't necessarily a completely disastrous thing. What really matters is the ability to move between sociability, other people, and your own company. 
And rather than thinking hard about solitude or hard about being sociable, you need to think really seriously about your roots back and forth. That if you've got a solitary uh, research life, as, as historians tend to have, make sure you've got company structures, join things more actively than you might, so that you always know that you can choose to move between the conditions of sociability and solitude. And it's that movement that matters rather than one thing or the other. Oh, I love that. Exactly. And and as therapeutically, absolutely just avoiding stuckness. Stuckness is where the, the difficulties start to arise. Yeah. So like you say, absolutely that kind of movement and choice that keeps things in play. Um. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you. I'm also very grateful. Before we started, we were saying you're sitting in a force, um, force what I didn't, can't remember what force gale it was, but it's a 50 mile an hour wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're still here. <laughs> but we're still here and we managed to maintain connection for almost all of the call. Lights are still on, so we're, we're fine. We're Thank fine. you so much, David. And, um, I, I, I say I will put all the details in the show notes and so that people can find out more about your work. And I am yeah. looking forward to reading your book on the pandemic. Well, good luck with your series. I wish it were around when I was a student. Bless you. Thank okay, you very thank much. You. Thank you for listening to 